Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we identify your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we go into a deep dive into the issues of facial recognition software with Professor Mark Andreevic. But first up, here's news of a trial. a trial. Since July 2019, Perth City Council has been filming and tracking people moving around parts of the city without their knowledge. The council uses a network of 30 cameras with deep learning AI face recognition around East Perth to recognise faces and vehicles and to count passing people. It's a trial. Governments love introducing extreme measures as trials that never end. Like the Inju card's ban on cash for poor people. We don't need to discuss it, it's just a trial. Trust us. Residents spotted mysterious cameras near their homes, pointed right at them. Since then, Digital Rights Watch has started a campaign calling for a ban on facial recognition technologies for public surveillance. Last year, more than 130 closed-circuit TV cameras equipped with face recognition technology were installed across Darwin's central business district. But Darwin Council claims they won't use the face recognition capability that they expressly asked for when requesting federal funding for the cameras. Trust us! Queensland Police installed face recognition cameras for the Commonwealth Games in 2018, but failed to find any of the 16 high-profile suspects they searched for in the crowds. They expanded it to less serious crimes, but only found 5 out of 268 suspects they were searching for. Brisbane Airport also has a trial of face recognition cameras, Stadiums Queensland confessed to a trial of face recognition software on sports fans and concertgoers without telling them. People were being monitored in real time with their biometric data potentially being stored and shared with other agencies like state and federal police, and possibly foreign governments. New South Wales and Victoria have each run a trial of the same system at major stadiums. In Australia, it's illegal to collect information about people without their consent, and it's illegal to use the information you collect with consent for different purposes than those to which people have consented. After a trial of similar automated facial recognition in 2016 and 2017, London's Metropolitan Police reported that more than 98% of matches mistakenly identified innocent members of the public as criminals. No honour among thieves. Clearview AI, the company that violated the copyright and privacy of billions of people around the world by stealing their photos from social media sites, violating the terms and conditions of those sites, has had its computers hacked. 
thieves stole the Clearview AI customer list and leaked it to the press. Australian Federal and State Police all denied using Clearview AI face recognition software. Listed in the leak were the Australian Federal Police, as well as the State Police in Queensland, Victoria and South Australia. Trust us. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Face recognition in the pandemic? Mark Andreevic is a professor of media studies in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University. I spoke to him by Skype and began our deep dive by asking him, face recognition was hot three years ago, but now we hardly ever hear about it. What's been happening? The attempt by the industry to attach itself to current conditions. So uh, the coronavirus pandemic has led a lot of the people who are promoting the tech and developing the tech for facial recognition to think about the types of opportunities and contributions that the tech can make in the current conjunction. So we're seeing a lot of those companies come up with applications that respond in part to the concern around touch technologies. So whereas you know, certain secured facilities have had biometric identification for access that rely on fingerprints. They're saying, well, you know, if you don't, if you're worried about touch and the possibility of viral contamination, what about identification at a distance? We can offer, you know, secure access via facial recognition instead of having to touch something. But they're also coming up with ways of overlaying other forms of biometric recognition on top of facial recognition. So smart cameras that are able to detect body surface temperature and then link that to an ID and, and then ID folks who may be symptomatic for uh, having the virus or I guess other conditions. So this notion of the ability to monitor high-speed passively at a distance is, you know, the, the underlying proposition of, of facial recognition technology. And the industry is trying to figure out all of the different ways in which that might serve as a selling point from security to convenience, to secure access, to employee tracking. So I, th- I think you're right. The industry is, it's right at a point where Many technologies that we're familiar with uh, seem to touch on, which is it looks like there are lots of applications where they think that it might be relevant, but technology hasn't really proven yet that it's able to deliver on its promise in those areas, but it's kind of building out, you know, kind of economic model and a promotional model based on all of those promises. And it'll be it'll be interesting to see what, what I've seen from the tech is that it's not able to deliver on the level of accuracy that it claims, but that it looks like that it might be getting there. And when it gets there, that's going to raise a huge host of questions, I think, around issues of privacy, surveillance, and monitoring. It's also going to open up a whole range of potential new applications 
for the technology. The one that gave me pause in the recent coverage is all the attention that Clearview AI has gotten recently. But we just did a nationwide survey in Australia about public attitudes towards facial recognition. Oh, what so did you say that? I can so and that just that I, they're just working on the release on that now. So your your call is really timely. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really interesting. Facial recognition's been an issue for ages, and the the twin problems have been that it currently doesn't work very well. But when it does work very well, it's a really it's got so many implications, and now it's quite separate to all the other things in the time of the pandemic companies want to push face recognition as one of the solutions. Yes, the facial recognition companies are seeing this as a potential opportunity to demonstrate the utility of the technology. And they're piggybacking off a couple of concerns. One is the concern around proximity and touch that's associated with the coronavirus, right? So some recognition technologies require either up-close scans or actually touching, like fingerprint scans or retina scans, whereas facial recognition offers identification at a distance. And in these times of social distancing, they're thinking, ah, this might be a useful application. So think of all the places, think of the shops, for example, where they're not taking cash now because of concerns about the virus, you know, that they're only touching cards. You know, that gives you one remove. But for some time now, now the folks who are promoting the technology have been talking about paying with your face. You know, even more touchless, even more at a distance. You walk into the store, your face is scanned on your way out as you're checking out. It deducts money from your account automatically. Then you have a kind of much more frictionless, contactless type of transaction. The same could be said for things like access to mass transit. You don't need the card anymore, just use your face. So this idea that all of the things that involve touching or proximity could be addressed in some ways by a technology that operates at a distance. And the other set of applications they're coming up with is piggybacking other forms of biometrics on top of facial recognition. So something that might measure body surface temperature at a distance can then be coupled with a camera that picks up on identification. So you can identify somebody who might be symptomatic at a distance, and you can do it at high speed en masse in crowds, having the cameras identify faces rapidly. So some of those affordances sound potentially useful from the perspective of viral management, but they also carry with them, of course, huge concerns about the changing nature of shared space and the forms of privacy that are compromised by the technology and the type of monitoring and surveillance that can take place once it's implemented. So there's an awful lot going on there. So China is one of those places where I know they were trying to track people's temperature to see if they might have a fever. And where even some of the police had camera glasses that were feeding into a face recognition database. And of course, over there, you do have face recognition all over the place. You can't travel, you can't buy, you can't do anything without face recognition working. Yes. So China has been one of the places where the technology is being pioneered and developed. And I've seen some of the coverage in the COVID moment coming out of the development of facial recognition technology that can actually operate even when you're wearing a mask. Because one of the things that came out in the news from China was that once everybody started wearing masks, this started interfering with the ability of the technology to recognize people. But now they're they claim that they've developed systems that are able to use the exposed parts of the face, presumably the, the eye region, in order to identify people at a distance. 
I don't know the accuracy of that. I suspect, given what I've seen from the accuracy of facial recognition more generally, that it's probably pretty low at this point. But it's interesting that they're working to develop it in, in that direction. I suppose the further point with respect to China is it's one of the places that's, you know, targeted that technology as a cutting edge technology that it's investing in and developing. So a lot of the hardware and software that supports facial recognition technology comes out of China. So, uh, you know, even systems that are operating in Australia are, come from Chinese companies because they've taken a leading role in part because of their ability to implement the technology quite broadly. And then you had situations where face recognition on Apple iPhones wasn't able to tell the difference between a mother and her child if they were Chinese Australians. Yes. Well, one of the issues that's come up over and over again with the technology is forms of bias that apparently built in based on the data sets that they've been trained on. So they've discovered that in many cases, the algorithms that they're using are less accurate with darker skin tones. And that has implications for racial disparities when it comes to the accuracy of this technology. And of course, depending on what the technology is used for, that can have quite grave consequences. You know, if it's being used for security purposes or safety purposes, and people are being misidentified, the outcome can be uh, quite dangerous. So I know that there's some algorithms in the US that, that police are using to evaluate the type of threat posed by an individual by linking their identity to past behavior. Now, if you were to couple facial recognition technology with that in order to identify people, you could potentially misidentify somebody and calculate that they're a greater risk than they are. And respond in ways that might be more violent. There's a history of that in the US. If that's more likely to make an error when it comes to people of color, you know, then we would see a, a racial disparity in the implementation of force or, or response. So there are real dangers to the racial disparity in terms of exacerbating racial divides. And they claim that all of these are, in a sense, fixable, that, you know, over time with better training sets, tweaking the algorithms, coming up with better systems, that they're going to be able to do a better job of recognition. And I suppose that's a technological question. We're going to see whether that's true. But then there are all of the ethical, political and social questions about, you know, what it means to develop highly accurate, passive identification at a distance. The coverage that's really caught my attention recently was of the app Clearview AI developed by an, an Australian who's living in the US that is a phone-based app that allows anybody who has access to the app, it hasn't been made available to consumers, it's primarily being sold to police agencies. Although my understanding is some very wealthy consumers have been able to get a hold of it. The coverage of that has indicated that it's actually quite accurate and that you know it's reached the point of being able to track down, given one photograph taken on a on a mobile phone, it can go through its database, which it's scraped from social media around the world, and link that photo with all photos of that same person uh, that have appeared on social media and therefore lead to the information that's available. To the, about them online and so to identify them that way. So in a sense, it's piggybacking off of the social in media infrastructure that we've built where people put information about themselves along with their photos about themselves. And they've scraped that often in violation of the terms of use of, the, of companies like Facebook, but nonetheless, they're able to, to collect and gather that data. And the accounts that I've seen of that are quite 
surprising in terms of the level of accuracy. It seems to be able to to take photos that are taken by someone using a mobile phone and then link those with a range of photos that people have taken uh, or have posted of themselves online, even photos from several years ago, you know, when you think maybe people look quite different. So it looks to me that in terms of the types of applications that they're thinking about for facial recognition technology, it still is not at the level of accuracy that would inspire confidence that it's not making large-scale errors, but that it looks like it could be headed in that direction. And certainly it seems quite technically possible that it's going to be quite accurate down the road. It's an interesting situation because Clearview has illegally acquired the photos. So it's basically a criminal organization. Its whole product is founded on a criminal act. So it's not only violated the terms and conditions of all the social media sites that it stole the photos from, but it's also violated the privacy laws that say that when you give private information, it can only be used with whatever you've consented for it to be used for. It can't be used for other things. And so they're using it for this face recognition database and this app without the consent of all the people whose photos they stole. And yet, police organisations, supposedly upholding the rule of law, are happy to break the law this way around the world. In, in principle, it, it is alarming that, that these photos that people have put online without ever anticipating, I don't think that it could be used for these purposes, are now finding that it is being used for this purpose. I'm not, I don't have the legal expertise to sort out the issues there. I do know that they're being sued in a state in the United States under the biometric data collection provision that is a specific biometric uh, um, uh, protection clause that says you're not allowed to collect biometric information about people without their permission. And if you categorize faces as biometric data, then you've got a legal case. So there's a class action suit going on against them in the U.S. The status uh, and, 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 you know, I think what they're exploiting is the status of information that's posted publicly, right? So, and what the level of expectation of control over your image is once you put it on the internet in a place where it can be publicly available. And I don't have the legal expertise to answer that question, but certainly in principle, when you talk about, you know, the Australian privacy principles, certainly violates in principle those principles that, you know, when you put information, when you when information is collected, it should be made clear what use that information is for, and you should be notified if it's being used for other purposes. If you voluntarily make publicly available a photo of yourself, I suppose that then becomes the legal question, you know, to what extent are you able to stipulate the uses to which it's put when you put it out there publicly? And I, I just don't know the answer to that. But Certainly, you know, in overall terms, people were not expecting that they would be entered into a biometric database used by the police once they put their, you know, photos up on Facebook. So in principle, it's clearly a violation of those expectations. I think we're living in a world now where anytime you put information out there that's publicly available, I don't think this is right. This is what concerns me about this world. But in practical terms, one can expect that it's probably going to be harvested and scraped and used for purposes that you didn't anticipate. And that's, that's kind of the world that we've built for ourselves. And I think it's an alarming one. Uh, and problem, it should certainly give people pause when they think about the type of information that they post in forums that are publicly available. Clearview, yeah. 
discovered that there's no honour among thieves because they got hacked. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they got hacked. And, and then also the, the client list got leaked. Right. So that's how we were able to see that they were the police in Australia were using it. So, yeah, once you develop an app like that, it's going to be very interesting to see how the legal case against them plays out. Because if it turns out that they're in violation of the state law, then they'll at least have to delete all of the people who are potentially affected or potentially covered by that law. But it's a state law. But it might open the door to further class action suits globally. And I, again, I'm, I don't have the legal expertise, but I would be very surprised if they didn't run afoul of the general data protection provisions in, in the EU. I don't have the legal expertise there, but it well, looks I, to me like they're on very sketchy legal ground. But the model that they're anticipating, which is basically a consumer facing app uh, that's able to provide identity recognition based on publicly available images, that's something that I think down the road, you know, whether at Clearview AI goes down or how they fare, that's something that we need to be concerned about because all of those images are out there. The ability to create a database out of them, you know, even if Clearview is violating terms of use, Facebook has all of those images. Google a while back claimed that they would be able to make an app like this, but they held off from it, you know, for ethical reasons. But, you know, the, the companies that, that have, that already have access to these images as part of their business model are able to do this. I think we're going to have to make sure that we've got pretty good, solid, clear legal guidelines in place in order to prevent the development of, of this type of technology. Because I don't think it's something that people at the moment want out there as a possible technological capability, that there would be a general widespread ability to identify anybody based on just pointing a phone at them. And you can think about all of the potential harms that could come from that, from stalking to domestic violence, so on, if you can identify people at a distance and, and then make that identity available to people who might be interested in it. Everyone now has the ability that if you have someone's name, you can at least search online and see what is publicly available for you to look at. So you can find out if they've got a LinkedIn or perhaps some of their social media or whatever you can find, but you have to know their name. If you're able to right. just point a phone at anybody in the street and instantly get a little profile of who they are and what they're about, that's scary. Yeah, that would dramatically transform our understanding of what shared space or public space means. Now we know we go down the street, we see lots of people, but we don't know who they are. And our knowledge about them it tends to be quite ephemeral. We saw that face, but the likelihood that we would recognize it in, a, in an hour or two is, is very low. The likelihood that we would remember where they were and what they were doing in most cases is very low. But I think we can divide it into a couple of different use cases. One is consumer-based facial recognition where anybody walking down the street can identify anybody else. And that can lead to all kinds of concerns, everything, anything from stalking to identity theft and, and so on. And then on the other hand, we, we might think about more centralized uses. So the ability of public authorities or commercial entities to be able to track what we do in public or shared spaces in ways that are completely unprecedented. So we think about the movements that we make and the activities that we engage in as we move through shared space as, for the most part, ephemeral. 
there isn't a permanent record of everything that we looked at as we walked down the street and where we went and what types of shops we went into and what types of, I don't know, health clinics or so on we went into. We tend to think of shared space as ephemeral and because ephemeral, mostly anonymous, right? Unless there's somebody, we're a public figure, we're recognizable and people can see where notice where we're going for the most part we experience that space is largely anonymous and ephemeral for the most part but the development of centralized forms of facial recognition will change that entirely we will no longer think of shared space as, as having any element of anonymity or ephemerality what we're doing there can be identified we can be identified Everything that we do, every shop we go into, every health clinic we visit, every person's apartment that we go to, all of those can be, if there's widespread implementation of a smart camera infrastructure, that can be captured, recorded, and linked to an identity. And that's a fundamental reconfiguration of our experience of space. That was Professor Mark Andreevic talking about face recognition software in the time of the pandemic. Listen next week for what the world of constant face recognition software can be like, where a shop knows your complete shopping history and therefore how much extra they can raise the price on the shelves. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incombotech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia, to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station, and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule 
to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.